0: This is The Registry Podcast. Welcome to The Real Perspectives Podcast, where we dive deep into the evolving world of real estate, bringing you the latest insights and stories from industry trailblazers. I'm your host, Vladimir Bosanets, co-founder and publisher of this podcast, where we aim to shed light on the innovative minds shaping the real estate landscape. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Daniel Amir, the visionary founder of Flutterpads. Flutterpads isn't just another real estate venture, it's a game-changing platform that's redefining the concept of home rentals. With its unique approach to providing fully furnished homes for medium to long-term stays, Daniel and his team are addressing a vital need in today's dynamic housing market. From creating a seamless rental experience to integrating smart technologies in living spaces, Daniel's journey with Flutterpads is a fascinating story of innovation, resilience, and foresight. So without further ado, let's welcome Daniel to the Real Perspectives Podcast. Daniel, good afternoon. How's it going?
1: Hey Vlad. I'm do I'm doing well. You?
0: I'm doing well also. Where do we find you today? Where are you?
1: We are in cloudy Los Angeles. Oh, <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's somewhat that's
0: unusual, I guess, for Los Angeles, I suppose.
1: Everything is unusual in Los Angeles nowadays. <laughs> Whether well, it's just one piece of the puzzle,
0: I hear you. I hear you. Um, well, Daniel, I would love to um, step into a time machine with you and go back and uh, learn a little bit about your background and sort of, you know, how you got to uh, this role today, and uh, you know, a bit about you know, career and sort of, you know, your experiences that sort of helped um, get you to the company that we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for for doing this with me. Uh, uh giving us a chance to speak, uh introduce our company. Um if you'd like for me to begin my career history, I'll begin there. So out of college I went to a California college, um based in based in California. Um then out of college I went into mortgage banking doing underwriting. So analysis, approving loans and so forth for residential so that progressed from my early 20s, uh, by the late 20s, I was in the capital markets of the mortgage industry. So, okay. of course, where mortgages are bought and sold in, in the big, bigger scheme of things. Uh, and then while I was at the crux of my career, young career, you know, burgeoning mortgage banker in the capital market space, um, the uh, 2007, 2008, the uh, situation hit, the, the great crisis hit. So our industry was decimated and our career roles became extinct. Um, and I made the transition <laughs> at the time.
0: No more mortgage. No more mortgage writing for a little while, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, the whole mortgage industry had to be uh, dismantled and recreated with new rules. The rules they had followed for the last 40 years had just been proven wrong and um, uh, failure-prone, um, which we'll get into that later but yeah so after the uh, 2008 crisis um, I out of desperation and just necessity reinvented my career um, by entering the wealth management private banking uh, securities brokerage space and it was at first seemed like it was a removed industry than what I was in but it really wasn't by the time I got in uh, was into that industry and the private banking uh, wealth management space, um, I carved myself out a niche where I became a specialized uh, broker advisor uh, on real estate investment trusts, investment related with real estate. So real estate investment trusts, um, infrastructure bonds of cities, um, debt finance, debt funds, you know, where you put in money and you get a certain uh, amount of uh, returns um, and so forth. So somehow, uh, as fate would have it, and my own uh, attraction, you know, inkling would have it, I was able to stay in the real estate space, and it ended up broadening my horizons and expertise. Um, So uh, I spent about 12 years, so a third of my whole adult, well, third of my whole life at that point. Um, So 12 years, year is uh, how how long I was in the corporate world. Uh, And in 2015, I just had waited long enough to make the move and uh, entered the real estate development field, knowing only finance, but not construction. But I thought it was time. I wanted to create value, tangible value, and not just people with the paper side of it. Uh, So I came into the real estate world differently than what most people do. Most people come from the real estate brokerage world or sales world. I didn't come from that side. I came from the finance side of it. And and what was
0: it about what was it about you know development at that point that you know really appealed to you was it sort of wealth creation in general or just you were interested in sort of creating physical spaces and uh, you saw it as a as a you know great wealth uh, a wealth accumulation tool.
1: I think the the answer to that question is uh, everything everything you just mentioned. So at first it was just a burnout from being in the financial world where I you know had to deal with. Um, replacing clients with investments that fit them, right? So and then after years and years, and, you know, I, I, was, I was still a baby, and 12 years is nothing in, in that space because things change. Economies evolve, investment vehicles and regulations evolve, so forth. I just couldn't escape this nagging feeling that in the end, the only thing I could think of or things that I do uh, prescribe to my clients' portfolios, whatnot. The, the saving grace was always tangible assets not commodities, but tangible assets, you know, um, so that just like the old eighties movies, uh, the, 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 wall street movie where the father tells the son, you know, son, go do something, make something with your hands, uh, stop, you know, pitching and, and pawning uh, papers. Um, that was, that had a lot to do with it. And, uh, it's a burnout burnout, trying to, trying to elicit 5% returns for people in a zero percent return environment, which I, I'm, I'm going to harp my own uh, horn here, but I did. I, I did um, um, successfully get my clients a very res- a respectable level of yields in the world that we lived in from 2007 to 2015 when I left. Where was a negative interest rate? You know, where you're you're losing money when you keep money in the bank. But I was able to squeeze out earnings using debt instruments and real estate investment um, investment type of in- instruments, um, bonds. So forth. And then once I started the the company, uh, which is a prayer and a, and a whim uh, that, hey, I'm going to start building things. I know where to get the money uh, to structure the money and um, to build things. I don't know anything about building. Um, so I reached out to a few people to see if I can partner up with them. Um, uh, any builders who would even waste their time uh, to do some sort of collaboration with some guy who's not from real estate. Real estate. Um, happens to be in most cities, uh, a very broad uh, term, like, oh, real estate, you know, it could be realtors or brokers or it could be title companies, but developers and constra- contractors, they're different people. Developers are one thing and contractors are one thing. I have learned all of this, uh, but the surviving pool as uh, economic shifts happen and, and as the aberrations in the market come to pass, the, the pool of survivors gets smaller and smaller. That that, that group uh, happens to be a very closed-knit, um, no new entries allowed sort of a thing. Um, almost like an unspoken guild, you know, let's say that. So I was trying to find myself into some sort of a connection with anybody who's a builder who, can, uh, who I can shadow and follow, and I found somebody um, just through an accidental connection. Um, and then... Got started in 2015, late 2015, when I founded the company. Um, my current company, FlutterPads. It's a um, two-year-old company now, uh, but yep. uh, it was born out of the real estate development company I found eight years ago in 2015. So um, uh, that's yeah, that was my entry.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about FlutterPads. How did how did this idea come out come by? I think it's a very interesting story. But I think it would be great for you to retell it to to our audience, um, and also then let's you know deep dive into into what the company does and you know where you're playing and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So Adaptive Capital Corporation was the uh, real estate development firm that I created in 2015, um, and then uh, through flound- floundering floundering around, stumbling around, learning development, um, I finally got my uh, got my footing. Let's say four years into it uh and then uh as we were just in good strides you know everything we build gets sold and you know there's good profit margin so we can repeat the cycle um just when we hit our stride in 2019 uh, end of 2019 uh, where i feel like okay i've learned enough i've uh, we have been known for one thing uh, uh, very well which is we are the experts in making mistakes adapt capital and we made them fast fast and we learned fast nobody makes more mistakes than us so that was our motto um and then so 2019 happens um the uh company looks great our model works what we were creating works we were a very niche developer that's a very important um segue into uh, where we came from and, and we should say that you
0: were building housing at this point primarily yes, right you, you, you're on the residential side of development
1: right and within residential side uh the side of uh, real estate um very niche developers we did mid-tier housing which uh means uh like middle income upper middle income uh homes yep. we didn't go for the the affordable very you know uh outside of the city kind of thing nor did we do luxury homes uh but our properties were very very advanced they were luxurious and you wouldn't have to spend five million to buy them, which is an average yeah. luxury home in LA. But um, our niche is, uh, or was, um, single-family homes, mid-tier, and small residential buildings. Uh, we learned very quickly: larger uh, residential buildings have economic problems and other uh, problems, uh, fiscal problems that smaller buildings don't have. As a matter of fact, smaller buildings are more liquid. You know, th- there's a lot more people who can buy smaller multifamily that are well performing. Sure. Than a forty-unit building, so we became niche developers. We knew we learned everything, you know, to the granular level. So, twenty nineteen happened. We were in great, you know, taking great strides, and then twenty twenty hits us, which is the COVID. And uh, for a small, microscopic developer like us, self-funded, um, bootstrapped, we didn't have the carrying capacity to carry all these products we built. We we. Uh, as a developer our model is you build you know you borrow the money you build sell it then redeploy the money in new line of products sell it again and you prepare for perpetuity you just move on um but 2020 happens and our products don't sell they're sitting in the market beyond our our experience and um so just as an accidental desperate uh move uh as a stopgap. Um, of how to weather out the storm. Nobody could could have predicted how long COVID would have lasted or the restrictions would have lasted. And the fallouts in the economy and uh, the shifts of home buyers and where they were buying, blah, 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 all of that stuff, there was not enough information to make a decision uh, or any sort of a planned um, uh, course of action. So all we could do is to try to hunker down and survive uh, as long as we, we could. To do that, we took our first experimental step of furnishing one of our pro- properties that's a, you know, sparkling new property. Um, and we thought, let's give it a shot. Let's hire people who know how to do Airbnbs. So faced with the, the uh, arrival of COVID and the inability for us to project uh the the environment changing and when you know things will get better restrictions will be lifted um we just like most developers uh throughout the country we couldn't project we just uh no way to to plan our route so we took a very experimental uh step part fueled by desperation part fueled by curiosity uh we contacted airbnb management companies um well-known companies to see if they could um uh help us just place one of our properties in um, a 30-day rental type of thing temporary rental because we didn't want to lose access to our property with a full-time lease at any given time we'd be able to uh, we need to be able to sell the property and so when we uh when we entered into management contracts with these well-known companies which i will not name (laughs) um we started learning the um norms of their industry what they charge how uh what's the occupancy situation uh, of properties like that we start seeing all of this and the quality of their work um none of that were good news none of that were good news but what was good news uh, and astonishingly our property first property got rented in six hours
0: and and it's important to 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 add that you didn't sort of know what would happen to a property that was furnished, right? This was sort of, you were just in a situation, you just had kind of this circumstance you had to sort of solve, correct? And you you were sort of exploring through Airbnb whether this could be done, correct? But you didn't have any idea kind of why, you know, whether number one, this would work, but number two, whether there is any demand for a furnished product as well, correct?
1: Actually, yeah. Not only did we um do this as an experiment uh and knowing nothing about that world because we're developers we actually thought it was a joke that who in their right mind would uh exist in the economy that would go and rent a place for ten thousand dollars fourteen thousand dollars just for one month or a month and a half i mean uh it, it just didn't make sense at all but when you are a ceo and you're the captain of a boat in a storm you do everything possible, you know? So that's that was the mentality that we went in with, saying oh, this is probably gonna be a waste of our time, but at least uh, we would have done it. And to uh, cross off that avenue of uh, action uh, from our list of things to do in the future. Yeah, so number one, we were um, completely unaware of that industry, uh, how it works. Uh, so it's very, very nerve wracking to predict, you know, you're taking in a plan of action, even though we're a tiny, tiny enterprise, uh, but I still have to have at least some attempt to keep it in an organized professional uh, mode of operating. But, you know, taking that step of trying to put the property up for a month-to-month rental uh, came with the unknowable um, information of, you know, what kind of activity we're going to have. I thought it would be. And then second, it, it seems like a joke. It seems like a very, very uh, un, unreliable and unrealistic expectation that somebody was going to rent it for you know this many uh, days or month or one month that were this much money. And lastly, it was a very, very, very sincere and severe concern is we now have our fresh off the, the press, fresh off the assembly line product we've built and our products are very very beautiful they're not you know they're mid-tier but they're uh, um their value to the buyer is that they're luxury homes but at uh, affordable higher end so these properties now being put into usage by rental the uh, uh, guests what is gonna be the fallout, what is gonna be the wear and tear on these properties and uh, how much is it gonna cost us to to, uh, refurbish those back for sale again? So that that concern loomed in all of our staff's minds. And uh, as I was uh, going into this, the result of our first attempt to put a property up with a management company that was charging 24% of gross collection, rent collections, the result was that in six hours, the property being listed on to Airbnb, it got rented. So they didn't really do any work. They, you know, uh, we furnished the property ourselves. And in six hours, it got rented for three months from a foreign group from France who were coming here for live and work. Um, so I thought, okay, that's a fluke. And I, you know, being a, a CEO of a company that has so many irons in the fire and, and fires to put out, I said, okay, if this is stabilized, I move on to other things. So I've, I've shifted my focus to other um, aspects of the business. And um, when my staff, maintenance staff, um, the uh, the guys who actually oversee all of our properties, uh, they're, the, they're builders, but they're also, they have now ever since then uh, turned into hybrid, both maintenance experts and builders. Um, I mean, it's the best to have builders be the main maintenance people because they know uh, what goes where. Um, So they were reporting to me that the damages being suffered by one particular property that we, uh, the first one, the pilot program uh, was uh, critical in nature. And so I had a talk with the the management company and realized that they are mm, as big as they are and they're publicly traded, their management uh, knowledge, knowledge of how to maintain products that they're being, uh, they're, you know, they're taking in their hands, is less than maybe a new hire in a construction world. So, and on top of that, the service quality uh, they cannot maintain uniformly because what they do is every state or every city that they go to, they just call up the nearest management company saying, "Hey, could we could we work with you? Could you go take this property on?" So they have infrastructural yeah, it's
0: inconsistent service, essentially. Right? Yes,
1: it's, it's basically they're outsourcing their services. Uh, there's no quality control because they don't even know what quality uh, maintenance standards should be. Um, so all of this became quickly apparent to us because we're the manufacturers of products. Who better to know how to maintain products and uh, usage, proper usage, so forth than the manufacturer themselves. So that began. Um, a thought in our head that hey wait a second if we can go through the herculean feat of building things in the most restrictive jurisdiction in the country um why can we manage rentals so yeah so we uh said okay let's divvy up the crew let's divvy up the staff uh, I had my second in command go ahead and carve up labor hours and whatnot to do regular uh, servicing maintenance uh, of gas properties After the first experience with this outsourced management company, um, we came to the conclusion we can do this better. And we were uh, segmenting our labor uh, out of our staff. Same people who build the products, go service the products and guests. So it was a learning curve, but uh, we were in control. It was going very well. And then 2021, so right at the middle of uh, COVID, uh, we had a bunch of other products. Uh, I keep on saying products. When I say products, it means our, our residential buildings, multifamily and homes. So we finished more projects and we took the products to market and they were not selling, which is shocking because our average turnaround times were very, very, very short for any product because of the quality and the pricing. So then, you know, then the news came that there's a flight from the metros to the outskirts and to the uh, agrarian places and, you know, lakes. Um so now my uh, responsibility as a CEO to predict and project our uh, path of travel for the company became even more hard. So okay, we were just doing an experimental property with one, you know, just to, as a stopgap to see how it goes. Now we may have to do more. Um, and so we put some of the other ones uh, into the uh, into the, um, the the extended stay rental space, 30 days or more. Once again, with very very dubious uh, concept, who's going to rent something, you know, for this long or for this much money? And boy, were we surprised! Were we surprised? So, um,
0: well, yeah. So tell us about that experience then. So how, how did they lease quickly? What kind of sort of customers do you, you know, getting? And um, how did you become to realize that this was not necessarily. Just a niche little product, but actually, it's uh, it's an interesting part of the industry.
1: Yes. Yeah, so by twenty twenty two, so oh, now I'm going to fast forward one more year. We're at the tail. Uh, we're now off of um, the COVID's uh, peak. Uh, we had about uh, I would say six units, six seven units in the market in that model of extended stay, um, and I had once again not been paying attention to the activity of rental activity because i was trying to keep the company together the financing together you know because you're sitting on millions of dollars worth of assets that that all the construction debt is due and so forth so you know i'm going back and forth with our financiers and that's when i get a call from my second in command saying um daniel do you realize we have um we've made close to half a million dollars in uh, revenue just from the rents and i thought it was nonsensical at first and then i saw the numbers and that's when something profound happened i we all stopped and wanted to know who are these people renting just like you asked me who are the customers we never took the time to to know who they are by that point we were so deep into the the, into this uh, uh mode of leasing extended stays that we it was time and we looked and we did a deep dive and a world of information started appearing and it wasn't easy to find but that that information started uh leaking out of the of the sources we we're checking so our rentals are average uh since then so we've been at flutterpads the new company has uh been operating unofficially for about 18 to 20 months um so our customer profiles are very, very interesting. So they're 90%, I would say, is the young professional uh, category. Um, sorry, correct myself. I would say 70% is the young uh, uh, professional. So any anything from stage actors to uh, psychiatrists to engineers who are sent for job uh, projects from one city to another. Uh, and then, of course, nurses lots of medical uh, professionals, uh, and, mm, and interesting. Yeah, so we've got, <laughs> I would say, um, as of now, as of uh, right now, uh, 30% nurse nurses, um, 20% artists, and the remainder are a mixture of people coming for medical treatment and uh, contract work. So there's 10 percent uh, is very interesting fun group that's the um, the group we have to babysit the most this the artist group so they're um, singers the <laughs> uh, actors uh, actors coming from different places in the world or uh, in the states and then for filming projects or musical or video projects whatnot. Um, but this demographic um, uh, once we took a deeper dive and we realized that the government has not tracked, officially the uh transient long-term travelers uh that group or it's it's called extended stay uh, lodging sector but it has always been taken as a rule of thumb by the real estate industry in general the commercial real estate industry and the government websites uh that about approximately approximately 3% of the entire rental housing market of the US prior to covid so prior to covid the rule of thumb was 3% of the entire rental economy of the US is accepted as being transient extended stays. Um COVID brought about tsunami, you know, of change. So digital work became prevalent, accepted if not mandated, you know, uh, by the government. And then you had um employers decentralizing from wherever the headquarters was. Now there are uh, satellite offices and other places. Uh, and they can have remote workers from other states that are cheaper, uh, if not internationally. So all of these sea change in the US economy led to a growth, an explosion of 50% of digital workers from 2019 to 2021. It was an increase of 50%. As of current statistical uh, statistical data, about uh 15 and a half to 16 million. Uh, workers are registered as digital workers uh, in the US as of 2022. Uh, as of 2023, as of last year, 27% of the entire workforce is now on uh, digital work in the US. And then um uh, j- about 16% of the entire American corporate employer uh, uh, enclave. So 16% of all corporate employers. Are now fully digital. So you got sixteen percent fully digital uh, employers, corporate employers. Twenty-seven um, percent of the entire workforce that that's registered workforce um, is digital work oriented. And then you have um the 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 independent gig workers, gig workers such as the artists and and the psychiatrists. And I wouldn't call psychiatrists a gig worker, but you know they're they're working for themselves. So they're choosing markets, whichever they want to go to. You know, to practice they can. So all of these, we're seeing a microcosm in our small test uh, pilot program in Los Angeles. Our occupancy rate was 85% and we made uh, yeah, 85%. And as of now, as of this last few months, it's been actually 110%. Why I say 10% extra is because we ran out of space. We are oversubscribed. We don't have the supply to meet the demand. It's that big of a market. I can get into the market size if you'd like me to.
0: Yeah, I would love to understand. You know, so this is obviously um, a you know differentiation for you and your company uh, compared to some other, you know, whether it's a mom and pop or sort of a smaller kind of enterprise that 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 owns that owns properties. I would um, you know love to understand from 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 you how different do you think you are from, you know, the rest of the market?
1: Uh, so I'll begin with the problem. The problem that we found ourselves solving, uh, the problem is, as I mentioned, there's a gigantic percentage, 3% of the entire country is a big percentage. Uh, it has always been. Extended stay, it's a stable number. It's actually expected to have surpassed 5% after COVID. It just hasn't been tracked. So the problem is for these extended travelers, which have nothing to do, they have nothing to do with vacationing, which is the business of Airbnb and vacation rentals. So extended tra- travelers such as uh, you know, young professionals having to do projects somewhere else, healthcare treatment seekers, students, um, uh, construction uh, workers, whatnot, Those people, their choices have always been, I would say, um, the last 12 years, before that it was two choices, but the last 12 uh, 12 years since Airbnb came to the market, uh, just three choices. One is really poorly located extended stay hotels, Roche Motels, by the freeway. The only kinds of uh, extended stays that are out there is either the ones you can afford would be right next to a freeway, kind of outskirts of the city, truck stops, basically. Or extremely expensive condo rentals in downtown high rises. Those are extended stays by big brands like Hilton and and so so you have that choice. Either stay in a truck stop or just stay in a thirty thousand dollars a month extended stay. Second option is you go with a Airbnb vacation rentals and try to make a deal for you know thirty day plus extended stay. You end up paying ten to fourteen percent commission to the Airbnb uh, uh, platform and. Um, you may not see the quality uh, that you saw in pictures. So unreliable quality uh, from one Airbnb to another. And third, lastly is the mom and pop you were mentioning. So if you go to mom and pop and come say, Hey, can I get a month to month rentals? That would come with the security deposits or the termination fees, no flexibility. And absolutely uh, you're incapable of controlling the quality of what you're getting. So there's not too many people who do month to month rentals anyway in the mom and pop business. Uh, They always want a 12-month lease, uh, uh, and he cannot break these leases without facing some steep, steep um, uh, costs. So you have these three uh, solutions. None of them are are optimal for extended-stay rentals, but that space, that uh, that extended-stay demand has always existed, and it's uh, exponentially growing uh, for multiple other factors. So the solutions that um um flutter offers is we tie all three together all three together um so we have a online open marketplace digital marketplace like airbnb so it's democratizing the, um uh extended state lodging so if you own a property and you think it's uh it should qualify for our um uh, quality requirements yes throw it up on, on our website and you can become a member and you can join. Um, so we're inviting the mom and pops by coming into our platform as a member. And you'll have to meet some requirements. So you you keep our standard of quality. Um, so Airbnb platform, then you have the mom and pops entry into the business. And then lastly, the hotel motel uh, business. Hotel motels are, uh, their value proposition is uh, suppers, and uh, from us quite a bit because they're once again uh located in poor areas outskirts you know, in the city outskirts uh, they're not in residential areas Flutterpads pads is only in prime metropolitan residential areas so where you can just throw your bags down walk down the street walk your dog find you know grocery stores and uh, Whole Foods and uh, amenities that you want uh, uh extended stay hotel motel cannot come to our space because they're commercially zoned You cannot put commercial buildings in residential spaces. So our concept uh, totally, totally upends the extended stay traditional providers, which is the hotel, motel spaces. Um, So now we've blended the accessibility, the ease of use of uh, online marketplace, the supply of the products from mom and pop qualify i just want to stress that who qualify we don't unlike airbnb that allows anybody to go onto their platform we don't we are very conscious about our brand so uh, we bring the supply in from other people Uh, and then lastly the hotel motel space because you're coming to Flutterpads, our brand you can expect the same quality standards across all of our properties just like a hotel so you're not missing out on anything. You're gaining a lot. So uh, if you choose to, to rent through Flutterpads, because if you rent through, let's say, a extended stay hotel, you can go to a hotel room. One room versus another. It's going to be a compact room with a, a kitchenette next to a bathroom whatnot. You don't have to suffer any of that because you're living in a home, actual home. So all of this now is grounded, grounded by one very particular difference that we have with our uh, with our uh, competitors. Aside from the hotel chain owners, all the other competitors we have, which mostly are online digital platforms, either management companies or Airbnb type of uh, rental platforms, they're nothing but a digital company. We are a digital company and a physical company because our company owns its own assets, which are deployed into this um, a Flutterpads model. And we are leading by example. In other words, when Airbnb has their properties listed uh, on the search results, whatnot, you know, they're, they're provided by other customers or uh, property owners. Uh, Airbnb has nothing to do with the quality of that property. We do, because we ourselves are operators. We have our own properties in the markets. We have our brand to protect. So as long as everybody... Um, prescribes to our, our our requirements you know property owners um uh, sticks with us and our requirements the brand itself will bring people's reliance on quality affordability yeah. and accessibility yeah.
0: so daniel what's next where do we go uh where do you go in 2024 and you know beyond
1: uh we just uh kicked off our crowdfunding uh platform as um Uh, as one leg of our marketing. We've never marketed, and without marketing, uh, it's uh, spending even a dollar in marketing. We have occupied ourselves, you know, our our occupancy rate is 85%. So in 2024, with the fundraising, both organic fundraising, speaking with um, institutional investors or uh, family offices, whatnot, uh, and the crowdfunding, um, as the funding comes in, we are going to expand to three other cities in in our home state, California. So we want to be in San Diego, Irvine, San Francisco and Los Angeles. So Los Angeles is our first market, um, and we still have yet to grow. Uh, LA. Um, we have 11 million in assets in LA right now. About 14 units um, of our own, of our own in-house units, and there's a uh, uh, outside property owners who are joining the platform as members. They're providing another four to six uh, in the in the next uh, couple of months. But by the end of 2024, we'd like to have a presence in all four cities that I mentioned, San Diego, Irvine, Los Angeles, which we already do, and San Francisco. Um, Our growth plan, uh, which we have divided up into a couple of phases. The first phase, um, if we are to hit our 15 million funding goal uh, this year, then we would be tackling California, California. hit our uh, unit count here so i think the total unit count we want to reach in california is about 400 total out of all the state uh, all the cities uh 300 to 400 sorry if i i can't remember the exact figure because i have 25 cities to deal with uh and then phase one uh which is a five-year plan as uh, as the funding comes in uh we want to be in 25 state uh, uh 25 cities uh cross state across country so Uh, each of these metropolitan locations um, are going to have a certain amount of company owned assets to lead the charge and then invited property owners.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Um, How do you feel about the industry? So, you know, part of your business was born out of necessity and kind of what happened you know um with the industry you know at the onset of you know COVID, how do you feel that the industry is uh going to be you know evolving over the next few few years to sort of help you with your with your business yeah that's
1: you know that question looms in all developers minds um those who are vested in like we have been um for so long um look there there's there has been some overt changes and some under the table changes, you know, under the radar changes and these changes are accelerating. Um, So housing industry, uh, I'm going to limit my focus onto the multifamily, or rental housing industry. That's the space we're in. We're a very niche group, a very stable niche, you know, extended stay within the overall rental economy. Um, You have... Three areas of sea change. Number one is supply and demand. Populations are growing and shifting from different areas. So our California uh, has always been known as one of the fastest growing states, uh, you know, size and population count and the employment, all of that uh, stuff. Texas, um, Florida. Um, So you have population growth that's unstoppable. Um, It's just inevitable right um so that's the supply of housing for them uh, to house the growth has not been satisfactory uh, in the last 20 years to begin with which just got exacerbated really really poor, badly with uh i would say since the the financial crisis because you know financing was limited and then when financing was back on track then you have supply chain with tariff wars with China and Canada and so forth where building materials come from. And then, of course, the cream on, cream on top was the COVID, where you had uh, no rent collections. So all of these factors fall into the supply and demand. So supply will always, always underpace demand. And it's going to be like this for the foreseeable future. I mean, in our lifetime, I don't think it's going to the balance is going to come back. So the supply and demand imbalance will stay and get worse. Um, and look, now we are in, in this the Middle Eastern uh, sorry war in Middle East and the war in Ukraine. All of that. Uh, I'm not making a commentary in politics, but I'm making commentary on the supply chain. Building materials come through those routes, and we see it to the to the granular level. And this is also another difference where our uh, competitors don't know anything about this stuff. They're they're not developers. We came from the DNA of the bills. so we know the economics of our product that we're putting in the market. Okay, so you got the supply and sh- demand the uh, d- imbalance that's going to stay You got the affordability crisis which you see on the tv and i'm sure you've done pieces on it um there's nothing affordable about affordable housing that's a funny saying we have in california you know, this uh, all the governments putting aside money for so there's nothing affordable about affordable housing because you cannot it's not feasible to make anything that you can then charge less rents for uh unless it's a government-owned project you know uh so Uh, affordability crisis has been uh, front and center of all real estate news where mom and pop who sold homes uh, just classic example in 2019 at the peak uh, of um, the real estate market um, people were selling uh, like hotcakes you know they're getting prime dollars for their properties but after selling their property just when they were trying to buy one that's when COVID hits so there's the Shortage of homes for sale because people weren't selling. You can show homes, whatnot. It got exacerbated with people uh, buying up properties in the outskirts and in the in the vacation areas, and you know metropolitan uh, supply uh, of homes for sale dwindled because people were thinking, "Oh, I'm I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait this COVID out." So this affordability crisis made worse by the 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 inflation fighting moves of the government, with the interest rates shot up from three percent to eight percent. This is going to be a story that's going to repeat itself. Uh, and I, since 2007, when I entered, exited the mortgage uh, banking field to now, I don't think I've seen a window of peace or stability um, more than two, two and a half years. It's a it's, it's very, uh, very, very, very uh, uh, trauma field. Let's just uh, say that. Uh, so you got, the, you got the supply and demand problem. You got the affordability crisis. It's only getting worse because uh, as a developer, I can attest to it. We cannot make homes any cheaper than we make it now. And if this is already unaffordable, what's going to happen five, 10 years down the line? So that unaffordability crisis has resulted in the lowest home ownership uh, statistics in the american history so less least uh, amount of people buying homes in the history of tract history of american home ownership uh, is the last couple of years and then the oldest uh, average age that's the first time home buyer now it's 60 unbelievable so in my parents generation it was 30 28 to 30 now it's 60 and it was published in uh but i have to uh, figure out where I read that. It's New York Times, I believe I read it. Um, So you got supply supply and demand uh, affordability crisis that is here to stay. And then this is the um, the below-the-radar change. COVID brought about an irreversible um, shift, um, a socioeconomic shift and a cultural shift of people giving up or deferring the, the ideal American uh, ideal dream of home ownership for life experiences you know because they realize okay I'm going to fight a losing battle anyway I can't buy a home I can buy a condo yeah but you know what yeah why am I even why, my am I even uh, struggling so much to take on a imprisonment of a mortgage at seven percent at six percent whatever it is and at a, you know a seven hundred thousand dollar condo versus I can just pick up and leave anywhere work from uh my computer you know for if i I live in florida which is uh beautiful in the winter and really terrible in summer i can just work from los angeles and so that demographic uh socio-political uh cultural demographic shift has been like a tidal tsunami and we're seeing to a microscopic level in our company that all of these people choosing to pick up and leave and work somewhere else for a month and a half two months um and um That 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 those figures I told you about, you know, 27% of all US employees as of 2021 were digital, um, and then uh, 16% of all the US companies are are fully remote. We're now seeing international people doing the same coming here to work. And so uh, we have a huge percentage repeating, uh, international, uh, Yeah, very programs. interesting.
0: Very interesting. So Daniel, as we, um, you know, close our conversation here, um, what are some of the pieces of advice lessons learned, uh, things you'd maybe tell your younger self, um, that, you know, others can, you know, learn from.
1: Well, whatever lessons I've learned that, you know, uh, applicable to, if you are in my field and real estate and whatnot, um, so, lessons learned was that bigger is not always better. And, uh, it you know, it's a general saying, uh, but in real estate, everybody aspires to do bigger things. Uh, I learned, I learned bigger is not better. And that's why our business, uh, our uh, development business became such a niche developer of smaller uh, multifamily buildings and, and residential homes. Um, we tried out larger, uh, larger um projects, and we learned the minefield that you're going to uh, cross becomes expanded when you try to do bigger things. Um, your economic uh, fallouts are larger, so it's this economy of scale. Um, and then I would say, um, ask for help earlier on, you know, it's something I would advise, give myself the advice. I came from a you know background where I was the consultant, you know, I was the advisor to, to clients, you know, in my corporate world. So I had this built in um, thing about never asking for help, whether it's part ego or part habit. Um, I will figure it out. So when you're early on uh, in, in your career um, in this field in real estate and uh, development, uh, try try to get out of your shell, which I didn't do, uh, you know, until until later. I would do it much earlier now that I look back at it. Uh, ask for help. Uh, however, you know, discomfort you may go through, uh, reach out and you'll, you'll get, you know, ignored by a lot of people, but some people will help. And so the information you're going to get advice you're going to get before you take your first step can eliminate costs. Um, so the advice I would give to myself is, you know, ask for help earlier and the errors I made looking back, the mistakes I made was that, you know, bigger lessons I learned was bigger is not better. And also, um, you get what you pay for, you know, so whatever consultants and uh, service providers you uh, you get, um, you get what you pay for, usually.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for uh, all this wonderful feedback. It was great to learn more about your company. Best of luck in the oncoming years, and we'd love to catch up with you in a, in a little while and see how things are going.
1: Yeah, and you guys can uh, uh, learn more about us. Uh, we're in crowdfunding platform, wefunder.com. Please go um, uh, support if you if you believe in our mission. And uh, I think you'll be happy and, uh, and we'd love to be able to show you how we grow. Thank you for having us on.
0: That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers.